The light glowing from our Advent wreath is burning brighter. The radi- this radiance warms our hearts and fills us with joy. The Lord has done great things for us. Let us rejoice. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. Light three candles, see them glow brightly, brightly, so that all will know. How three candles show the way, making our darkness bright as God's day. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sorrow, I mean sowing, sorry, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Let's pray. Dear God, we carry many burdens and worry over many things. Help us to hear your promise in this Advent season, that in hearing we may receive the Spirit's gift of joy. And may our spirits be kept sound at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we continue in worship together.
Father, we want to thank you for the gift of your Son. For all that his coming means to us and to your world. We pray that we will catch a, a wider, deeper glimpse of what the coming of Jesus means as we worship today and we ask this through Christ. Amen. Sure, word of greeting with others here in worship today. So just want to make you aware of a few things happening uh, tonight and in the coming uh, weeks. Tonight at 5, we'll be meeting here to uh, be a part of the Messiah. We have a choir and an orchestra that will join us, and we'll also be a part of the choir as uh, we help sing. We'll have some copies available to you, and even if you think, well, I don't know the songs that well, just to come and enjoy this uh, great piece of music and art and uh, through which uh, God can speak into our lives. So that'll be here at 5 o'clock tonight. And uh, notice that the schedule for the next four weeks, beginning next Sunday, is one 10 o'clock service, uh, beginning next Sunday and going through uh, the second Sunday of January. So please take note of that. And also then uh, notice the Christmas Eve services at 5 and 7, and it's always a great time to gather. And we hope you'll, if you're around that you'll be able to uh, be a part of these gatherings. We're going to ask the ushers to come now and assist us as we give back to God our tithes and our offerings.
As we pray together, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we want to thank you today for the season of hope and joy and peace and grace. Father, sometimes life is overwhelming. Sometimes it feels as if we can't quite get over the hump of the struggle, the burden, the difficulty. Lord, we pray today that you will give us your grace to set us free and to fill us with hope. Lord, some of us, we pray that you would release us from the prison of our past. We pray, Father, that you will, you will give us grace to face the difficulties that lie before us. We ask, Father, that you would give to us hearts of compassion for one another and for this world. Father, we pray today for many among us who are struggling with all kinds of issues and burdens. We pray for all who are grieving today. We ask for your your merciful, comforting presence on each of them. We pray for everyone who is struggling with health concerns. And we pray today for Karen Gardy and Carol McNeil, for Calvin and Laurel Buecher, and Warren Woolsey and Bill Getty and Phil Muecher, for Evelyn Heil and Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson and Bruce Brenneman, for Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Dick Gould, for Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler, and for others who may come to our minds this morning, we ask for your healing grace in each of them. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of this church. And we pray the continued outreach of of the Bloom Club for the little little ones on Wednesday night. Lord, we're so grateful for all the children that you've blessed us with. And we pray that you will help us as we help them at a very young age to begin to understand how much you love them. How important they are to you. That as they grow and mature their hearts will be turned to you. May this ministry be a part of that process of loving and caring and nurturing. Father, we pray for the ministries beyond us, and we think today of the Canadia United Methodist Church and for Pastor Russell. We pray, Father, for your grace upon him and the people of this church. Continue to bless them as they reach out to their community and beyond May your grace be upon them and may they sense that in a very real way. And Lord, we pray for this world in which we live. We pray, Father, for compassionate wisdom and grace and mercy for all the refugees of this world. We pray for an end of violence in our nation and in this world. We pray, Father, that you will work miraculously among your people as they serve in this world. As we think this morning of, of Hudson Hess and Brenda Osterhus who are, who are leading a work team to Haiti. Bless them and encourage them. We pray for David Heisinger and his sons Luke and Gabe as they head back to the U.S. for some urgent medical needs. We pray, Father, that you will bring healing to them and help to them and to their work. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who who face persecution and many do not have the availability of your word. We take it for granted. We can have any Bible at any time. 
so many of our brothers and sisters do not have this luxury. So we pray, Father, that, that you will bless them with the scriptures in their language. Help those who are working to interpret in the scriptures. We pray for, for all who are working to translate and print and all the processes of that. And most of all, Lord, for our brothers and sisters, we pray that you would encourage them and that the word they have would come alive in their hearts and in their minds and in every part of their being. Father, we thank you for your grace in this world. We pray that you will make us people who continue to exude your spirit in all that we do and everywhere that we go that we might truly bring the joy of Christ to people who desperately need to experience it. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, remembering the prayer that he teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Scripture reading this morning can be found in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. And following the reading of the scripture, children can be dismissed for children's church and junior church. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord.
Please be seated. Coming to, um, to feel that Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, is, is uh, one of my favorites. I assume that may be true for some of you as well. There's a passage in that book that I, I just find so profound. As we think about our worlds, our lives, the place that we find ourselves even today. Let me just read this for you. He's talking about what, it, what the, this younger son was feeling as he's off in the distant country and what he's thinking and experiencing. He said, it goes something like this. I'm not so sure anymore that I have a safe home. And I observe other people who seem to be better off than I. I wonder how I can get to where they are. I try hard to please, to achieve success, to be recognized. When I fail, I feel jealous and resentful. And when I succeed, I worry that others will be jealous and resentful of me. I become suspicious or defensive and increasingly afraid that I won't get what I so much desire or will lose what I already have. Caught in this triangle of needs and wants, I no longer know my own motivations. I feel victimized by my surroundings and distrustful of what others are doing or saying. Always on my guard, I lose my inner freedom. And start dividing the world into those who are for me and those who are against me. I wonder if anyone really cares. And I start looking for validations of my distrust. And wherever I go, I see them. And I say, no one can be trusted. And then I wonder if anyone ever really loved me. And the world around me becomes dark. My heart goes heavy. My body is filled with sorrows. My life loses meaning. I have become a lost soul. I think what intrigues me about those words of now and is that it describes this broken world in which we live. And the consequences of the sin that is this world in which we live. Because of sin, we, we live in a broken world where there are all kinds of things that take place. Wars, terrorism, accidents, violence. We live in a world that, is, that the consequences of sin leads to broken lives. So much pain and damage and struggle and burden and weight and guilt and shame and loss. And because of sin, we live with broken relationships. I mean, so much of our pain is caused by us. We hurt each other. We disappoint each other. We fall short of the dreams we have for each other. And we, we exist in this world of, of so, uh, so in, infused with the consequences of sin. And as painful and as difficult and as much of a struggle as that is... 
the deepest consequence of our sin is the distance that it creates between us and God. I would argue that it is that distance between us and God that leads us to the kind of behavior that causes pain and leads to atrocities. But it is that distance from God that is the deepest struggle of our lives. It is this distance that leads us to create images of God that look nothing like God as the image that God reveals of himself in the scriptures and throughout history. It is this distance from God that causes us to wonder if if what we do matters. I mean, if, if God is distant from us, if God really isn't interested in us, if God really doesn't have anything to do with us, if, our, if the consequences of our sin are that God has decided, I don't want to have anything to do with those people anymore, then quite frankly, what difference does it matter how, make how we live? I mean, the most natural thing in the world then is to just live with apathy, to live with self-gratification. And just simply to ask the question every time is, what's that going to do for me? What does that mean for me? It is that distance from God that causes us as human beings to say, why do I care if they're hurting? Why do I care if I hurt them? What difference does it make? Why should I be involved in in making the world a better place? Why should I care what happens? It's all about me. It is this distance from God. The consequence of our sin. That creates these, these damaged Receptors, this inability to really grasp who God is and to have a relationship with God, our Creator. And we've tried everything we can. You know, like the product, like the prodigal son is now and describes him. We work and we strive for success and we do everything we can possibly think of to do. And it feels like we're trying to grab an apple off a tree that's a hundred feet in the air by jumping up to reach for it. Even on our best days, we aren't even close. And the most natural response to that is, quite frankly, what many people, how many people respond is just simply to say, I'm just going to do what I want. It doesn't make any difference. I give up. There's no hope. And there are millions and millions, billions of people in the world who live with a sense of despair. And quite frankly, it isn't limited to people who don't know Jesus. It isn't limited to people who don't follow God. We wrestle with it too because we know our own sin. We know our own struggles. We know how often we fall short. And we look around at the world and we think, God, where are you? What's going on? And it is into this mess and into this distance that God says... The only way that's going to change is if I do something. When you read the prophet Zephaniah, which I'm guessing is probably not in everyone's daily devotions. In fact, it's one of those prophets that you have to go, where? That's in the Bible? Really? Uh, And you go to the index, or if you're like me, you go through the the thing you memorized of the 12 minor prophets, uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and you get to the Zephaniah. But you read Zephaniah's prophecy, and we read the whole thing, but the first two, two and a half chapters are all about the judgment of God on his people. It's all about the consequences of sin on his people. Over and over again, God keeps saying, you've turned from me, you've turned from me, punishment, judgment, wrath. And then you come to this last section of the last chapter, and in verse 15, God says, the hope is that I am going to come among you. I'm going to live among you, and that's going to change everything. 
You know, when I was in seminary, David Seaman taught a counseling class. He was the pastor at the Methodist Church there for a number of years. And I remember distinctly, you know, a lot of classes you walk away and, and you think, okay, there's some things I'm going to remember. And, of course, in our humanness, we forget a lot of things. But one thing I remember him saying is that there are some things, there are at least two things that you cannot do by correspondence course. One of them is swimming and one of them is counseling. It's just pretty hard to learn those skills from a distance. And it seems to me that saving, rescuing, is something you can't do from a distance. You think about it. If someone is, is, has fallen down into a ravine, you can't rescue them from a distance. Somebody has to go down and help them. Somebody's got to throw a rope. And God, realizing that we simply can't be saved from a distance, comes to us. And Jesus comes to bridge the gap. Jesus comes to close the gap in that distance. And to give us an image of God, of who he really is, helping us try to re-understand this twisted image that we often live with of who God is. In, the, uh, in Mary's, uh, after Mary is visited by the angel and she goes to see Zechariah and, Mary, and uh, Elizabeth, she sings a song. We call it the Magnificat. It's Mary's song of praise. Listen to what, it's, what it means for, for God to come. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he's done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He's scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He's brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things. Sent the rich away with empty hands. He's helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he has made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. It sounds a lot like what Jesus says in the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel. When he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, really the first time in his public ministry, and he preaches a sermon... And he takes out the scroll of Isaiah and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is why I'm here. I didn't come because you guys have finally reached the point where you have earned the right for me to come. I didn't come because finally you guys are starting to get your lives together, so I'll be there for you. I've come for the people who are needy and helpless and vulnerable. That's why I'm here. And if we're honest, in one way or another, that's all of us. That's all of us. Jesus comes for all of us. And he comes to bridge the gap, to close the distance, to give us a new image of God. One of the things when you read this whole prophecy of Zechariah is that there is a lot of judgment here. And you read this and you think, you know, God is really angry with Israel. And he is. He's frustrated with them. After all he's done for them, they continue to reject him and turn away from him and ignore him and are apathetic toward him. And they go off and worship all these other gods. But one of the things that I have discovered as I continue to read the scriptures, and actually particularly when I read the Old Testament, is that the judgment of God is never vengeance. It's it's not the kind of, of punishment that you and I have a tendency to use. The point of God's judgment is always to turn us around from the way of destruction. 
The point of God's judgment, the point of God's warnings, it all, the intent of it is always to try to wake us up to the path that we are walking. The path of destruction and death that, that we're walking down. To turn us around so that we will walk toward God, the source of life and hope and joy and peace. Now, for a long time, I, it, it seemed to me that, that following God was really about obeying rules. And if you obey the rules, then you're good. But the rules were always demanding and, quite frankly, kind of impossible. But what I'm discovering is that God, even the rules God gives us for the purpose of turning us back toward him. And, and, and in our disobedience and in our struggles, God isn't sitting there saying to us, I, you know, we, well, I have a tendency, let me put it this way, I have a tendency to think God is just waiting to say, I got you again. You're going to pay for that? When the reality is, God weeps over our sin. And his warnings and his judgments are always intended not to to just make us feel bad, not to pour the guilt and the shame on us, not to, to punish us, but to try and turn us back toward the source of life and joy. Toward him. And I suspect we often miss that. We miss that because we get so wrapped up in the shame and the guilt of our sin, and the evil one is whispering in our ears, God could never love you now. And all the while, God is saying, I'm with you. This is why Jesus came to show you, to prove to you, to to help you understand that I'm for you. And I am convinced that the judgment of God is always about grace. In fact, I I think God, I don't know how else to say this, but it strikes me that God is just wired for grace. And I think most, a lot of the time, I should say, we have a tendency to think God is wired for judgment. I have this image in my mind. I don't know if this is right or not, and I'm sure there are flaws in it. But I have this image in my mind of, of God being the kind of parent who goes against the rules of all the ways we're taught to parent. I, I have this image of God with a little, with, his, with a baby who needs to take a nap, lying the baby down in the crib and it not wanting to take a nap, crying, screaming. And the parenting rule is you let him cry it out. I have this image of God after a few minutes of saying, I can't take this and going over and picking the baby up. Now, maybe, that, maybe I want that image of God because that's what I have a tendency to do. But I think it's, I mean, it's, it's Hosea. God's saying to the, to, through the prophet Hosea, saying, you people have turned away from me again. And he pronounces warnings and judgments. And then he says, but how can I give you up? How can I ever let you go? This is the God who sends Jesus. And our response is to trust, to believe that in the midst of a world that is broken, in the midst of lives that are broken and relationships that are broken, in the midst of a world that is not yet totally fixed, to believe that because Jesus has come, it will be. To believe that God's way is always the way of joy and life and peace. And what is it Zephaniah says? He says, here's what you want, here's what you people do. Sing, shout, rejoice. Celebrate. Do we celebrate because everything now is perfect? Everything has been taken care of? We don't have to worry about bad stuff anymore? No, we still live in a broken world. We're still fallible people. And we still have troubles in our relationships. But we sing and shout and rejoice because Jesus has come and that changes the landscape of everything. And now there's hope. There's hope for us now and certainly hope for us then. We talk about one of the reasons we come to worship is to be reminded about who God is. 
To be reminded of, of, of that God is who he says he is. But we also come to worship to declare to him that we believe he is who he says he is. That we trust in him and that our, our songs and our, our shouts and our celebrations are because of God, because we believe God is who he says he is. And we celebrate him and we rejoice in him. And I think one of the great, one of the great mistakes of the church is that we haven't emphasized that celebration enough. We've gotten so caught up in the seriousness, and it is serious, that we've become somber. I do find it interesting when you get to verse 20 here that the prophet says, that God says to the prophet, when I've done this for you and you've understood this and you begin to celebrate and rejoice, that everybody else around the world is going to say, oh, that's what it looks like to be a follower of Yahweh. And that's our witness. That we celebrate, that we rejoice. I think sometimes one of the reasons people aren't all that interested in being Christians is because there really isn't a sense of the joy of the Lord in us that might draw them to Christ. Unfortunately, the church has a reputation for being the opposite of joyful. And here's the prophet telling us, but joy is what comes out of the people of God. Because if being holy is being like Jesus, being like God, and if God is a God of joy and grace and mercy and compassion and truth, then that's what we look like too. And yes, we take sin seriously. In fact, we take it so seriously that we recognize the pain and the consequences. And it is that turning to Jesus That is the answer to it. But it's joy. And unfortunately, we've encountered far too many Christians and have connected far too often, unfortunately, the idea of being holy with being stern and anything but joyful. That's not the image we have of God. What is it Jesus says? I've come to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Good news. And I'm convinced that joy draws people to God far more than fear does. And so often we operate out of a spirit of fear. Instead of a fear, spirit of joy. Because God has come. Because Jesus is here and he has created a whole new landscape for what it means to live. The more I think about this, the more I am convinced that the reason we struggle with joy and get so enamored with fear is because we don't really believe that God delights in us. I mean, it's what, the, it's what Zephaniah says in verse 17. He says, God delights in you. God comes, he lives among you because he delights in you. I think it is one of the most difficult concepts for our minds to grasp that God actually delights in us. He rejoices over us. When we come for worship and we're singing our songs of, of joy and celebration to God, He is also singing songs of joy and celebration about us. And that's mind-boggling to me. And I think we have such a hard time grasping that because we don't really understand the nature and the character of God. He doesn't just love us. God likes us. It is one of the things that separates the biblical creation story from all the other creation stories. All the other creation stories of all the other peoples of the ancient Near East particularly, their creation stories begin, the human beings are created either by accident or as punishment. The gods have a battle, somebody loses, their punishment is you're going to have to go deal with human beings. Or they have a, there's something going on, somebody does something, they spill something, there's an accident, human beings are created, oh great, now what are we going to do with these people? 
They are a menace to the gods. Human beings are not something the gods like or look forward to. They are a menace to the gods. And that's why in all the other cultures around Israel, to worship and to pray means to try to trick or cajole or manipulate the gods into doing something good for them. Every part of their worship is, you know, that's why, they, that's why they cut themselves. That's why they sometimes sacrifice their children. That's why they go through all of these rituals. It is to try to convince these gods who don't like them to do something good for them. Only the biblical creation story says God created because he wanted to. Because he wants relationship with human beings. Because he loves us. And he likes us. It's not a burden for him to be around us. He wants to be around us. No wonder he gets so upset with Israel when they start worshiping all these other gods and reject the only one who truly loves them. And we do the same thing. Because it is so difficult for us to truly grasp that God delights in us. Does he always like what we do? Not by any means. But it doesn't change the fact that he delights in us, in you and you and you and you and me, without exception. I think that's why I keep going back to to the story I heard Dennis Kinlaw tell that in the early days of the church, in the first couple of centuries, as they were trying to figure out the theology of the church, one of the questions that arose was this. If human beings had never sinned, would Jesus have still come anyway? As they debated that, there were a number of theologians who said yes. Even if human beings hadn't sinned, Jesus would have come anyway. Why? Because God likes us and he wants to be near us. We don't really know the answer to that question. Scripture is silent about it. But it does seem to me to look like the heart of God. Because we are important to him. Because he likes us. Because he loves us. Because he wants the very best for us. That's why Jesus comes. When you get to the end of Zephaniah's prophecy, just one last sentence. God says, I the Lord have spoken. Period. What Jesus comes to do about our, the consequences of our sin is not a pipe dream. It's not, it's not something we wish might happen. It's the word of God. Period. And we can count on it. So sons and daughters of Zion, Sing. Shout, rejoice, because your Savior, Jesus, has come. Holy Father, help us to understand help us to get a fuller picture. who you are. And of your heart for us. We pray this through Jesus who has come. Amen. stand and join us as we sing.
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.